the go sprint lectures on african mobilities a podcast by africa multiple okay hello and welcome to the seventh edition of our podcast series sprint lectures on african mobilities my name is Jochen Lingelbach. i'm postdoctoral researcher in the research section mobilities working on the project africa and the global history of refugee camps focusing mainly on eastern and northern africa in the 1940s and 1950s in this edition we want to look into past struggles not only around mobility, but also connected to it, struggles for freedom from colonial oppression and white minority rule in Southern Africa. And camps did play an important role in the history of Southern African liberation movements in exile in the so-called frontline states. So I'm really happy and glad to have Christian Williams here, connected from Bloemfontein in South Africa, who will give a lecture on the camps of liberation movements in Southern Africa. Christian Williams is a senior lecturer in the anthropology department at the University of Free State and a Humboldt fellow in the anthropology department at the University of Freiburg in Germany. His research examines histories of Namibians who lived in exile during Southern Africa's anti-colonial struggles and draws from his doctoral training in both anthropology and history. He published a monograph on Swapo's exile camps with Cambridge University Press in 2015 and is now preparing a new book that explores the interplay between personal, religious, faith, and anti-colonial exile politics through a Namibian refugee past. To continue working on this, he will move to Freiburg in July, hopefully, if it will work out, for the second part of his Humboldt Fellowship. From his many publications, I just want to highlight one most recent that was last year, Christian edited the Forum on African Refugee History in the African Studies Review, and apart from the editorial, which gives a great introduction into approaches in this emerging field, he also contributed an article to the forum titled Swapo's Struggle Children and Exile Homemaking, the refugee biography of Mawazo Nakadilu, calling for a more historical research into refugee biographies. Today, he will give a talk titled Liberation Movement Camps in Southern Africa. So thank you for joining us here, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Jochen, for that introduction, and thanks for everyone for joining me today. So my lecture today will focus on, as Jochen said, liberation movement camps in Southern Africa, drawing from my uh, 2015 monograph, as well as other secondary literature that's come out on this topic um, in the last several years. So from 1960 to 1990, Tens of thousands of people fled Southern Africa's white minority regimes for exile in neighboring recently decolonized countries. Although some of these exiles scattered across the globe, the vast majority remained in Southern Africa, residing in camps administered by liberation movements representing their countries of origin until their eventual repatriation. It follows that liberation movement camps differ from what we commonly think of today as refugee camps camps administered by a host nation and or transnational humanitarian agency on behalf of a community of people whom the United Nations and the international community recognize as refugees. At the same time, they were not strictly military camps, for even camps designed to train and deploy guerrilla soldiers often accommodated children, women, the elderly, and others with no military training seeking refuge with the liberation movement. Rather, liberation movement camps were hybrid spaces that defy labels commonly used to categorize camps globally today. And they have cast a long shadow, shaping nationalisms and international relations across Southern Africa's recent past and present. Here I will consider Southern Africa's liberation movement camps from four perspectives, through their chronology as they evolved in the Southern African region over time, 
through the broader international solidarity networks that sustain them, through the experiences of those who inhabited them, and through their regional legacies. On the 14th of August, 1962, Holden Roberto and some senior officials representing the FNLA and Angolan Liberation Movement opened a camp at Kinkuzu, southwest of Leopoldville, now Kinshasa. Although by this time, Algeria, Egypt, and Ghana had provided military training courses to small groups of freedom fighters, Kinkuzu was the first camp to be opened by an exiled Southern African Liberation Movement in a host country. The camp was short-lived. In 1962 and 1963, the year when the Organization of African Unity first met, the Congo appeared to be a strategic location from which to infiltrate some Southern African region from liberated Africa. Also, Prime Minister Cyril Adola sought to position himself in OAU politics as a Pan-Africanist committed to supporting a collection of liberation movements known as the Congo Alliance. By the middle of 1964, however, Adola was deposed as Prime Minister amidst rising political strife in the Congo, abruptly changing the face of Congolese liberation politics. Early the same year, Tanzania's president, Julius Nyerere, declared his willingness to open camps for liberation movements inside the country's borders. And by the year's end, Zambia had achieved political independence, paving the way for liberation movements to establish camps there. It is these two frontline states, Tanzania and Zambia, where most of Southern Africa's liberation movements initially opened camps. Of these early camps, the first and most significant for several prominent movements was Kongwa. In April 1964, the Tanzanian government, on behalf of the OAU Liberation Committee, set aside a tract of land for liberation movements then hosted within Tanzania's borders. The land was situated at the site of an abandoned railway station located 80 kilometers east of Dodoma, near the village of Kongwa. Initially, the Mozambican Liberation Movement for Limo and the Namibian Liberation Movement Swapo were based at Kongwa. And within months, they were joined there by South Africa's ANC, Angola's MPLA, and Zimbabwe's Zapu. Each liberation movement managed its own camp, governing the daily lives of hundreds of fellow nationals according to routines set within their respective areas of control and with oversight from the Tanzanian Defense Force. Some of the movements remained at Kongwa for only a year or two before relocating to other years. Regardless, the template for structuring camp life and addressing camp conflicts remained remarkably similar across many of the camps which liberation movements administered in Tanzania. The same point also applies to some extent to Zambia, where liberation movements established camps in designated military zones, utilizing Zambia's strategic borders. Officially, the purpose of many of these camps was to train new recruits for Southern Africa's burgeoning guerrilla armies. Camps, origins, and perceived purposes were considerably more complex than official government discourse suggests, however. For example, by 1964, President Nyerere was not only committed to supporting Southern Africa's liberation through armed struggle, but also concerned about how to manage the growing numbers of Southern African exiles then residing in Dar es Salaam. By allotting camps to the liberation movements at Kongwa, the Tanzanian government was able not only to demonstrate its pan-African commitment, but also to control exiles' mobility and its concerns about its own security. At the same time, some of those exiles relocated from Dar es Salaam to the camps were unhappy about the move, especially aspiring students. During the early 1960s, many young men were recruited from Southern African countries to join liberation movements in Tanzania on the premise that through their liberation movement, they would be able to access secondary and tertiary education denied to them by colonial regimes. Some exiles did access such education, but far more were sent to camps 
where the liberation movements offered them basic military training and lessons in revolutionary guerrilla warfare, a very different education than what many had sought. For them, liberation movement camps could feel like detention camps. At the same time, liberation movement camps could also arguably have been designated as refugee camps for the Tanzanian and Zambian government granted refugees to Southern African nationals as groups, irrespective of individuals' political affiliations and military activities. The mid-1970s marked a watershed in the history of Southern Africa's liberation movement camps in at least two respects. First, the overthrow of the Portuguese government in April 1974 led not only to the political independence of Angola and Mozambique, but also to the opening of these countries to the liberation movement. From 1976 to 1978, SWAPO established a vast network of makeshift camps in Southern Angola, inhabited by the flow of people infiltrating and fleeing Namibia, and larger semi-permanent semi settlements deeper in the country, all with the support of Angola's MPLA-led government. Likewise, following the Soweto uprising of June 1976 in South Africa, the MPLA permitted the ANC to provide military training to new exiles at camps in northern Angola. Similarly, ZANU, which became increasingly embroiled on conflicts with the Zambian government during the 1970s, opened camps in Mozambique with support from Frelimo from 1977, recentering its operations in exile there. The second watershed from the mid-1970s onwards, liberation movements began to establish camps for fellow nationals whom the movements especially sought to designate as refugees. The first such camp may have been the Old Farm, a piece of land on the outskirts of Lusaka, which Swapo purchased from the Zambian government and where it established a Namibian health and education center in 1973. With the collapse of Portugal's colonial empire the following year, the impetus for establishing such centers became far greater as vast numbers of Namibians, South Africans and Zimbabweans, including many women and children, fled into Angola and Mozambique. By the 1976, the Zambian government had closed the old farm and had allotted a much larger Namibian health and education center to Swapo in Zambia's western province. In 1978, the Angolan government followed suit, replacing camps primarily inhabited by Namibian non-combatants in volatile southern Angola with a larger, more secure camp to the north in Angola's Kwanzaa Sul province. The Tanzanian government set aside similar camps for the ANC, enabling the liberation movement to provide schooling and health services for non-combatants in Tanzania's Morogoro province from 1977 onwards. Despite widespread use of the term refugee to refer to such camps, they nevertheless shared important features with other liberation movement camps. These include the primary role of liberation movement officials in administering the camps, the constant threat of colonial forces targeting the camps, and the presence of liberation movement's armies at these sites. To maintain liberation movement camps, the liberation movements relied also on recognition and aid from a broader international community. One key site of recognition was the OAU, so the OAU Liberation Committee's fund, which were then dispersed to the liberation movements with, the, with OAU officially, uh, which the OAU officially recognized. OAU aid accounted for relatively little of the resources that liberation movements required to run their camps, but OAU recognition was important, influencing the recognition that liberation movements, liberation movements received from foreign governments and the willingness of potential host governments to, account, to accommodate them. More significant in financial terms were donations made by the Soviet Union and other Eastern Bloc countries, the liberation movements, which they recognized. The Chinese government offered similar forms of aid to Southern African liberation movement camps, 
the Southern African liberation movements in their camps from the Night Out for movements, they found themselves on the wrong side of the Sino-Soviet split. During the 1970s and 1980s, the Nordic countries, United Nations agencies, and Western non-governmental organizations had also all become important sources for aid for liberation movements in ministering camps. By 1969, the Swedish government had begun to pledge direct official uh, assistance to OAU recognized liberation movements, followed by the governments of Finland and Norway in 1973 and various United Nations bodies and NGOs thereafter. Although these donors often spoke of the quote, humanitarian purpose of their assistance, aid was repeatedly channeled into liberation movement camps, which as noted, where military and humanitarian aims were deeply entangled. Moreover, such humanitarian donors played a crucial role in defining liberation movement camps and their inhabitants for the international community, generating extensive support for, for Southern Africa's political refugees. Initially, much aid was sent to liberation movements in an ad hoc manner through interpersonal networks, and frequently aid responded to humanitarian crises with basic commodities. During the late 1970s and 1980s, however, liberation movements such as SWAPO and the ANC received consistent large quantities of aid from Scandinavian countries and the UNHCR, and camp inhabitants were rarely living in such dire circumstances. Indeed, during the 1980s, the Nordic countries shifted from commodity aid to project aid at a number of these liberation movements camps, uh, building fully-fledged schools and medical facility, uh, facilities there. Liberation movement camps shape divergent experiences, which at first glance appear contradictory. On the one hand, many experience the camps as sites of comradeship within a national community. Former camp inhabitants and historians who have chronicled such experiences emphasize several points here. These include inhabitants' national pride after completing military training courses and empowered roles for women who are able to join guerrilla armies or pursue higher education due to the support structures available to them and their children in the camps. Vision of basic services in camps was highly symbolic for many camp inhabitants who often could not access such quality services as colonial subjects. Similarly, foreign aid in camps highlighted liberation movement's international standing and capacity to be an independent nation on the global stage. Such experiences reflect liberation movement's efforts to build new nations through the camps that they administered. Consider, for example, this citation from Swapo's 1973 proposal to purchase the old farm. The philosophical basis of this center is to germinate a model nuclear community, which would form a foundation for the future Namibian society. There, Swapo envisages to reorient Namibians with different cultural, social, and educational backgrounds towards the ideals of one Namibia, one people, and one nation, end quote. In articulating this vision, Swapo drew from an established body a theory for anti-colonial guerrillas engaging with civilian populations, which had been put into practice elsewhere globally. In the Southern African context, Ferlimo became especially associated with radically transformed social relations in its camps and liberated zones inside Mozambique. At these sites, the liberation movement asserted its, its will not only to create a new social order, but also a new man, quote unquote, a new kind of human being, which would be better than the traditional and colonial beings which had come before and which would shape the post-colonial future. At the same time, liberation movement camps repeatedly produced conflicts which threatened to pull emerging nations apart. Conflicts revolved around exiles differing access to resources and privileges, setbacks in armed struggles, rumors of traitors and spies, 
and the work of liberation movement's own security apparatuses. Conflicts also reflected the same markers of social difference, including ethnicity, region, generation, gender, and education. Repeatedly, liberation movement officials use violence to respond to internal division and discipline their own members. And frequently, movements perpetrated this violence with the support of host governments, who, whose leaders tended to side with liberation movements established elites. To understand these conflicts and how they could emerge from the same sites that generated such powerful feelings of comradeship, it is important to grasp how everyday life in liberation movement camps was. From the moment in which exiles entered a camp, they were reliant on those who administered them to access food, shelter, clothing, medicine, and weapons, all the necessary resources for their survival and for fighting a war. Camp inhabitants were also required to follow the particular rules and routines of the, the camps in which they were living, including restrictions on their ability to move within and beyond camp space and to associate with other camp inhabitants. Moreover, as previously noted, Camp inhabitants were vulnerable to colonial regimes, which at times targeted camps with attacks. Under the circumstances, there was strong impetus for exiles in camps to submit themselves to a nationalist movement that could provide for them and protect them. And yet the national communities formed in camps were very hierarchical and often unstable, especially when liberation movement officials used their control over camp daily life to assert power over rivals in a national community. Comradeship and conflict in, in the camps also frequently spilled beyond camp borders. Although liberation movement camps were partially contained spaces with restriction on movement inside and outside the camp periphery, there was also interaction between exiles and local hosts surrounding these sites. At times, locals admired freedom fighters and benefited from them. In some cases, however, locals came to resent these foreigners who developed a reputation for fighting criminality and womanizing. Perhaps the most consistent bond and source of conflict among exiles and hosts were the children born to exile host couples near liberation movement's camps. More than 30 years after the end of Southern Africa's liberation wars, liberation movement camps remain powerful sites of historical production across the region. Although the physical spaces of camps have been abandoned or repurposed, the camps figure prominently in the national histories of the region's post-liberation nations and of the frontline states that hosted them. Moreover, they remain significant in the personal narratives of many former exiles and other citizens whose, whose own relationships to anti-colonial struggle is inextricable from these sites. For the now ruling parties of Southern Africa's post-liberation nations, there's much at stake in controlling histories of exile camps. All of these parties were once exiled liberation movements and they relied heavily on narratives of anti-colonial resistance from exile to bind and govern national communities. Integral to any rendering of these exile histories are the camps where liberation movements first governed their fellow nationals and where most exiles lived. Although the symbolic weight of exile camps differs across the region's different nations, they're important to many governments as they legitimate their authority to rule. Former exiles also frequently narrate camp histories as they seek recognition for their bravery and suffering, suffering during the liberation struggle. Often these narratives affirm an official history articulated by liberation movements upon whom former exiles now rely for resources in a post-colonial nation. At the same time, as former exiles attempt to gain leverage over the recognition that they are granted, they often include details of their own unique experiences in camps. In so doing, they present historical knowledge that extends beyond the boundaries of an accepted national history and of competing histories that oppose it. 
Many histories of the camps are rendered in this manner, be they via organized interest groups, such as ex-combatants, struggle kids, or survivors of various kinds, presenting stories to government officials, or via individuals narrating their experiences to others in everyday encounters. A similar point also applies to local host communities in the frontline states, some of which have begun to publicize histories of camps as they seek to create heritage sites and appeal for government resources. Finally, it should be noted that many enduring legacies of camps have not entered the public political realm or have only done so to a very limited extent. Far-flung Southern African locations are bound together by the children born near camps and by the exiles that died near camps. Moreover, many feel nostalgia for liberation movement camp life, wherein, despite its hardship, inhabitants could often access food, shelter, and other resources that are difficult to come by for many in post-colonial, post-apartheid Southern Africa. In these and other contexts, liberation movement camps in the past remain integral to Southern Africans' lives in the present. Thank you so much, Christian, for this interesting talk. I would first like to take the opportunity to ask a question myself and then open the floor for the others. One thing that struck me from your work, it seems that refugee camps can also have a liberating or empowering potential for political struggles. And I think this is an important point because usually, and especially in critical research, camps are rather seen as something negative. But I think a new work also shows the potential of camps as spaces for empowerment and political self-organization. And I think other examples where it could fit in are protest camps of social movements, from the Tahrir Square in Cairo to protest camps against the European border regime or protests of refugees in Berlin or Paris. So coming together and self-organizing in camp can indeed be an empowering base for political action. And I was just curious, Do you think that the liberation movement camps also fit into this narrative of what might call liberating camps or, or were they more military camps within authoritarian command structures or were they both? So the, my short answer is both. <laughs> um, and depending on, on where one lived, what your point of reference is, you can uh, easily emphasize one or the, or the other. Um, I tried in in this talk to really weigh in on, on both, uh, both sides of this. Um, and I, I do also in my, in my book, though I, a good portion of the book um, becomes focused on some of the conflicts and hierarchies that emerged in the, in the camps, which I, uh, which I argue are, are, are so crucial to understanding hierarchies in, in, in Namibia today. But um, if one doesn't understand the, the liberating experiences that people had in camps, then, um, Uh, and, and just sees them as sites of uh, oppression or totalitarianism, then one is missing a lot of the camp experience, e even uh, uh, for those um, uh, who, who found themselves embroiled in conflicts in, in camps, they, they, you know, they will often acknowledge that side of the camp experience or how exciting it was to be at a particular, uh, a particular camp. I, I think um, there's, there's a lot that could be said on, on this topic. Um, and uh, of course, um, Uh, as one might expect, the liberation movements have, have often emphasized that liberating quality of the um, of of the of the camps. But uh, it's not; it's certainly not all mythology. It was a very real part of the experiences that many many had. And I I would argue that the liberating aspects of the camps and their more uh, of liberation movement camps and their more authoritarian qualities were integral to each other in 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 many ways. The uh, the threat 
of violence, the threat of uh, regimes um, to to exiles, both before they arrived in the camps and then in the camps, you know, um, you know, generated some of the intensity of, of bonding in those in those spaces, um, and it wasn't all uh, just superficial bonding uh, for sure. Thank you. I just want to read out one question from Joel Glassman, professor of African history at in Bayreuth. Short question, do we have figures or even rough estimates about how many persons lived or experienced these camps? So this is a really difficult question to answer. I mean, there are, there are figures, uh, but what's, um, if you were to go into the historiography of, of uh, different Southern African liberation movements and where that touches on camps, uh, you'll see that there's very little integration of those historiographies. So um, that's uh, uh, what I, in, in my book, I am effectu effectively writing about SWAPO, but I'm drawing from the other secondary literature and trying to initiate a conversation that moves across the historiographies. And, and for preparing this talk, I've, I've tried to really, you know, uh, you know, really consolidate that comparative work that I was doing in the in the book, but um, I could only give the the broadest guesses um, for for numbers. I mean, with with respect to uh, Swapo, there were perhaps uh, sixty thousand Namibians in in, in exile um, all uh, across the uh, Namibia's the years of Namibia's liberation struggle, um, of whom almost all of those would have spent some time or other in a camp, even if they weren't based in, in camps. Um, the numbers for South Africa are similar, which uh, speaks to the uh, a difference in the Namibian and South African experience of exile in the camps. When you consider how much smaller Namibia is as a population than in South Africa, those numbers are, are comparable for the two countries. For uh, Mozambique and Angola, the numbers are, are larger. Um, however, how many were in a liberation movement camps is another question. So many um, uh, Mozambicans that went into to exile were, were actually um, uh, housed in, in camps um, by uh, uh, United Nations camps and other uh, NGOs in, in southern Mozambique. And although the, uh, the liberation movement sometimes were, were moving into those camps, they were not what I'm calling liberation movement camps. Um, and so uh, what the numbers in the liberation movement camps is a tough question, uh, similarly with, with Angola. And uh, if there are figures on the Zimbabwean numbers, um, I can't recall what they, what they are. And um, I think they're a bit higher than the, the Namibian and South African numbers, but that gives you a general feel for what kinds of numbers we're, we're talking about and some of the complexity of compiling them. Okay, thank you. Um, next is uh, Stefan Oma, he's professor of economic geography in Bayreuth. I just wanted to ask uh, which role these uh, camps play in current debates on xenophobia in, in South Africa, either as a kind of point of meta reference or as something that people who were in the camps use to fight for more inclusive politics, because I, I rarely read something. I mean, I don't follow the press closely, but I don't see a discourse happening along these lines. Tanzanians fought for us. Um, now we should be more friendly to them. So the camps have come up as a point of meta reference for sure. Um, it's not, uh, it's certainly um, uh, South African politicians and in uh, commenting on and you know, uh, speaking uh, out against xenophobic violence have spoken to how you know, uh, the frontline states uh, receive South Africans in, in exile, including how they were received in camps. Um, so it definitely is a point of, of meta-reference in the debates, but 
um, to what extent um, it's there in more uh, specific uh, references of uh, more uh, other kinds of politics, um, uh, politics of recognition for various exile groups in South Africa. Of this, I'm, I'm uncertain, and I think it's, it's striking that it, I, I'm uncertain because I, I'm not familiar with it. And I think um, I'm not a, a scholar of, of South Africa's uh, liberation struggles, so I could be uh, missing what's, uh, what's out there, but I, I do live in South Africa and I obviously am extremely interested in the topic and I've only heard them come up as points of, of meta reference um, sort of uh, leaders speaking very generally on these on these points, and of course the, the xenophobia issue is not the same issue in in Namibia. Uh, as xenophobic violence, at least, is not the same issue in in Namibia. So, it, uh, not surprisingly, it hasn't come up there in the same way. Yeah, thank you. Next, I have a question from Peti Kinyera. Peti Kinyera is a postdoctoral researcher in geography in Beirut, currently based in Uganda. Thank you, Christian, for your talk. Growing up as a child of a soldier, I spent substantial amount of my time in internally displaced, displaced persons camps in northern Uganda. Until now, I have not come to understand clearly what a camp is. Could you speak a bit more <laughs> about what to you constitutes a camp to justify your positive gesture on camps? So a camp for me is a, is a contained or semi-contained space. So there's a restriction on uh, mobility from inside to outside in which there is um, considerable power over the, the daily life and the meeting of basic needs of inhabitants, as well as of the, to greater and less degrees of the kinds of information that inhabitants can circulate, or at least what official knowledge is. So I, when I think of camps, I think of these, to, to reiterate and put a finer point on it, I think about mobility, I think about uh, access to, to resources and how they're administered, and I think about exchange of knowledge and its limitation. And I think that one can, can uh, work with these different three different kinds of qualities when thinking about different kinds of, of camps. But of course, um, what this looks like uh, across uh, you know various kinds of camps that we might think of is very different. And of course, if we if we use the the camp in a in a more in a broader sense than the way I'm defining it, then even these points you know uh, um, you know dissolve. Uh, I I once um, I was reading I, I led a, a reading group at University of Western Cape on on camps uh, about a decade uh, ago, and I got my hands on a, a book written by an architect about camps that was sort of sort of working very glibly with the word camp, including summer camps in the same places, concentration camps, and everything else that where people use the word camps. So we think of all the ways that term is is used. Um, it really can mean very different things. But for me, there are these three um, core qualities which certainly apply to the camps that liberation movements administered and that look different in liberation movement camps than in uh, refugee camps as I you would, uh, it is commonly understood uh, and military camps is commonly uh, understood. Um, and that's why uh, although uh, those terms were certainly in use with reference to liberation movement camps in Southern Africa um, very often. I argue that we should refer to liberation movement camp as a kind of, of camp because the way that these three qualities worked in a liberation movement camp were distinct in a number of ways. Okay, thank you. Um, there's one more question from Joel. I read it out. What do we know about the circulation of revolutionary knowledge between the different movements, Swapo, ANC, MPLA, etc.? in and around the camps? Did they have a shared knowledge? So 
Yes, uh, but that's, and that's a very interesting question because yes, there were certainly shared knowledge, shared reference points. And yet what, one of the things I find remarkable about liberation movement camps is the extent to which different liberation movements administered those camps and were uh, remained within their camps, even when these camps were alongside one another. Um, that to me is part of uh, the fascination with Congo. I've written a, a chapter of my book is on Congo and I, I've written a separate article on, on Congo and gone back to it in a number of articles that I've written. It, not only was it the first camp for many of the, you know, four of the, the liberation movements uh, for four of, of of Southern Africa's uh, five post-liberation nations. Um, it's also all the, the liberation movements were literally right next to each other at this, at this camp. And yet there is um, very different knowledges uh, in the different parts of the camp and, and limitations to what was exchanged, even though there were, certainly were exchanges between the camps. Um, so I think that's striking. So, so yes, there is shared knowledge, but some of that shared knowledge, I mean, surely there was exchange um, and we can talk about to what extent that happened between liberation movements. But some of that shared knowledge is just from the, the, the uh, overlapping places where these, these liberation movements were trained far from Southern Africa, say, um, you know, points of reference the Soviet Union or, or China or Algeria, or, um, I mean, I, people were reading the Little Red Book in, uh, you know, Mao's Little Red Book in, in multiple camps in Congo, but that didn't necessarily come from the, the people in those movements exchanging it with each other, but from their experiences uh, being trained elsewhere in the, in the world. And, um, and of course, there, that also speaks to some of the differences between um, liberation movements and how much of the knowledge was shared, because although some movements like SWAPO, um, I mean, SWAPO was not um, caught in the, the Sino-Soviet split in the same way that some other movements were, where, I mean, we, we talk about Zimbabwe, you, uh, ZAPO is the, you know, is the Soviet-supported movement, and ZANU is the Chinese-supported movement, and that yet shapes those different movements in some different ways, and SWAPO was able to, um, to gain support from, from uh, across the, this divide and, and a number of other Cold War divides. And, uh, but depending on, on where um, these different movements fit in these Cold War divides, uh, where they received um, uh, training in other parts of the, the world, uh, be they uh, China, Soviet Union, or even other African states that, that shaped the kind of knowledge that was circulating in the camps and what, what was being read to, to some extent too. So it's, it's quite a complex question that you're, that you're asking and difficult to, to theorize in a way that sort of draws it all together without going into lots of details about one liberation movement or another. Thank you so much, Christian. I think um, we've uh, reached the end of our time here. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for the invitation and for the questions. These are really uh, good questions to think with. Undergo, sprint lectures on African mobilities.